It is the Last Call podcast with Chris Michaels, and I am back from sabbatical. I went off to Tulum, which is in Mexico, for those of you that don't know. They've got some ruins down there, and it is going through a bit of a revitalization where you've got all of the yoga yuppies that are taking over the place, and uh, everything is new in the downtown area Uh, Despite the fact that you drive through the whole place on a a one-and-a-half-lane road, which is in sometimes covered in mud uh, with no sidewalks, Uh, but everything is is just spectacular down there. Uh, Also, what's interesting is that everything is relatively affordable if you were tempted to move. So uh, if you're in the market for something, maybe an Airbnb to add on to your portfolio, maybe you should take a look down there. Uh, But what's also interesting about Tulum and that whole region, the whole Yucatan Peninsula, is that it's heavily associated with Atlantis or Poseidia. And uh, if you go back and you read up and you brush up on your mythology, uh, then a lot of things start to come into place. So what you have to realize is Poseidia is really another name for a portion of Atlantis. If you read Edgar Cayce or if you read any of your uh, Greco-Roman myths, anything like that. Um, And so what is Poseidia? Poseidia is really related to Poseidon. Now, if you go even further, and obviously Poseidon is is a Greco-Roman god, and then you've got Uranus in there. I won't say Uranus. Uh, Uranus is in there, and uh, he's also involved in the whole thing. But the point is this. If you go back and you read your Greco-Roman mythology, you find out, and you make some, you make some leaps, right? You find out that there are basically uh, 12 different rulers of Atlantis. Now, that's why is 12 important? Well, I mean, think of how many ways... 12 comes into our life. I mean, the obvious one is the length of the day, right? Two 12-hour periods. Um, You've got uh, got the 12 uh, steps that Horus takes across the sky, the the Egyptian god, uh, just like the 12-step program. If you're involved in AA or, uh, what is it? It's not alcoholic or uh, NA, narcotics. Analy- uh, analysis, yeah, right. N- Narcotics Anonymous, um, and all, you can you can just piece all of it together. So what is also interesting is that if you go back before a lot of these ancient histories and myths come into play, all of their origin myths have something to do with the sun. And what does that mean? It means that they focus on the sun, and they also say where the progenitors of their civilization come from. So if you're talking about anything in Europe or North Africa or in Africa itself, unless you're talking about Zulu, uh, or uh, it it extends as far as India and uh, even parts of China before modern China, what I mean by modern China is the recognized portion of China's history where it begins. They talk about the progenitors of their races coming from the, the West. So what does that mean? And if you're in China, they actually talk about uh, their progenitors coming from the Northwest. So almost if you're part of the retartarian crowd, 
there's some evidence for you. There's something you can glom onto with the Tartarian uh, mindset. For those of you that don't know, Tartaria is supposed to be a very, very ancient civilization that built all of the cities that we know and love today, but they were wiped out through communism and everything else, and their history covered up. The biggest evidence that the Tartarians try to use is we've got all of these photographs without anybody in the city that the photograph was taken in. So you see all these landscapes and these huge cities in the distance, and there are all these buildings, but there isn't a soul in sight. Now, the problem that the Tartarians do not wish to answer is the following, that when cameras first came out, they had about a 20-minute exposure rate. So if you've got a city with 600,000, a million people, 2 million people, you try to get 2 million people to stand still for 20 minutes so that the first cameras can take the picture properly in order for them to show up in the photograph. I mean, obviously, that's never going to happen. So there, that explains that. But you talk about the mud flood myth and all that. Maybe I'll go into another podcast. But the point is, is that all of these, uh, all of these races and all of these uh, civilizations? They all say that their gods come from the east. I, I mean, the west. They come from the west. They move east. They come from the west. Now, if you're in the Americas, like if you look at the American Indian culture of the mound builders. Yeah, that mound that goes up the Mississippi River out through the Ohio Valley and uh, basically all throughout that area. And if you look at uh, a lot of the American Indians and their stories that go from basically North America and down through South America, they all say that their gods came from the East. So you've got two different civilizations on both sides of the world saying that their gods came from a central point. If you're in the Americas, that came from the East. If you're in the uh, in Europe and Africa, they say their gods came from the West. So what does that lead us to? It leads us to the fact that there is a central civilization that was in the center of all of those things, right? And civilization seems to have gone out from that area. Now, what other people don't realize is a couple of things, and it's a wrinkle in the theory, right? The first thing is that you can look at hieroglyphics and languages and also writing, uh, particularly from Argentina, and then as it goes up through the Americas, eventually leading into Canada— the writing gets more and more crude and angular the further north that you go. So in other words, when you're all the way in South America, in Argentina and Chile, the writing is almost cursive, and the symbols are almost cursive, very smooth lines, wobbly, and all that stuff. And then as you go further north, it gets cruder and cruder and more angular, so it almost represents that a civilization, a very, very advanced civilization, was closer to the southern points of South America, and then as that civilization traveled northwards, the uh, basically you played telephone with knowledge, and it got cruder and cruder, and the interpretations got lost as you went further northward. Until you get about the Pacific Northwest, then you've got a lot of very, very intricate intricate symbols over there too. Uh, so the point is this. 
you've got a central... Well, before I go down that road, Antarctica could potentially be a source for this advanced civilization. It would make sense. I mean, we can go down that road, but I'm not going to. But what, going back to what I had originally was uh, speaking about, Atlantis in the Atlantic Ocean would be an extremely likely candidate for this central civilization that both sides of the Atlantic seemingly point to with the progenitors of their mythologies and their civilizations. So what else is important to know about this? And by the way, uh, uh, this is coming from my research over the years and also uh, smattered with a book called Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. And um, this is a book from, when is this from? 1890, I think. What do we got here? 1882. So... It's very important to realize that from over, what, over 100, what do we got, 140 years almost, right? Nothing has really changed about Atlantis. What Donnelly wrote in Atlantis, the Antediluvian World in 1882 is almost just as relative as it is today as it was then, it's almost as if they stifled the knowledge about Atlantis coming out because nothing is really new in this book that I didn't really already know. So, but here's the thing about all of this, is that if you've got a progenitor, right, then that allows us to really start to think that we're not that different from anybody else. It means that we all come from a kind of central source. So there's a little uh, a little passage here that I'm going to read. The following history of the destruction of their ancestors, talking about uh, the, the Chinese, vividly recalls a convolution depicted in the Chaldean and the American legends. So what uh, Donnelly is saying here is that it's all the same. Those three cultures, the Chinese, the Chaldean, and the American Indians all have the same kind of myth. Now, before I read it, there all of these myths talk about the same kind of thing, and they talk about how the waters of the earth bubbled up. They never talk about a giant type of tsunami event in the beginning. Ultimately, you know, you've got the Noah, the floods of Noah, and you've got a whole bunch of other flood mythology that you hear about. But it's not from a tsunami. They all talk about how this water bubbled up from the earth, which means they're hinting at what's called primary water. In other words, look up primary water, because I'm not going to go into it here. Um, so, the fact remains that in these myths, the water is from the earth itself. So he goes on, The pillars of heaven were broken. The earth shook to its very foundations. The heavens sunk lower toward the north. The sun, the moon, and the stars changed their motions. So in other words, the sky looked different the sun and the moon and the stars were more coordinated, right? They didn't move in these odd fashions. They all moved 
in a particular dance, and they were all coordinating together. Uh, so they changed their motions. The earth fell to pieces, and the waters, enclosed within its bosom, burst forth with violence and overflowed it. Man, having rebelled against heaven, the system of the universe was totally disordered, and the sun was eclipsed. The planets altered their course, and the grand harmony of nature was disturbed. So, this is important to realize that there was a type of a golden age that was around. There was a point in history where the moon and the sun and other planets were in a constant orbit and a constant dance that wasn't so disjointed that we see today. So what we have here is a cosmic imbalance that mankind is still working through. And how can you see this? What evidence do we have of this? Well, think about Christianity and think about other cultures. Even, even in this book, and even in this book from the 1880s, they talk about how different types of cultures do the same kinds of things and go through the same types of rituals when somebody is born. In other words, a type of a baptism. And if you want to get really gross, circumcisions. But we'll stick to baptisms. So, what happens in a baptism? If you're in the Roman Catholic uh, end of things, you get water dabbed on your third eye, right, your forehead, and ultimately you're washed away uh, or your, your original sin was washed away. So when you're born, that's it. It's you have sinned. You've opened up your eyes. God forbid you take a breath, and all of a sudden you are sinning left and right. So what needs to happen? It needs to be stopped so you get baptized. The same thing happened in a lot of these ancient cultures. So let's go one step further. Think about the idea of a birth. Think about what happens during a birth. Let's think about our good friend, late friend, uh, Jordan Maxwell. If you find him on YouTube, a lot of his stuff has been scrubbed uh, for good cause if you're part of the, uh, if you're part of the elite class. But here, think about it this way. When you're born, you, your mother has to have her water break. You come out of water. And then what happens is you are now in the world. Okay? So let's take this another step further. The idea of reincarnation, every single religion hints at it, but they don't overtly say it, unless, unless you're in the caste system, or uh, you talk about Jainism, or Zoroastrianism, or something like that. But the major, major religions, they really try not to talk about it, unless, unless you're the late JC, Jesus Christ, and then you die, and then you rise again, and there's the reincarnation, right? You go to hell, come back. And there's a reincarnation. But the Christians still, still hint at the idea that every single human being reincarnates. How is that so? The idea of baptism. Because what happens? Baptism 
is washing away the original sin or washing away the sin. But what did I do? I was just born. Well, if you believe in reincarnation, and the Christian Gnostics, they do and all that. If you believe in reincarnation, that also means that you could have possibly done some icky things in a prior timeline. So what happens is you've got this burden that travels with you, and you've got this quote-unquote karma, if you still believe in that. That's pretty much washed away, and you don't need to look at those kinds of things anymore. But, you know, for the sake of our argument, you've got karma from a prior timeline because you did some icky things. You uh, could have been a Roman, you could have slayed hundreds of thousands of Gauls, whatever you wanted to do. And so when you're reborn, when you're reincarnated, then you've got that burden with you. So what do you have to do? You have to get baptized, and you have to have that water poured on your third eye. So you have an awareness, you have a third sight, you have greater perception than you did when you were first born, thanks to the baptism. What else does does this imply? It implies that the prior timeline's sins have been washed away for you to start fresh in your current life, so that you no longer have that burden from a prior timeline weighing you down in this timeline. How about that? Now, here's where we get back to Atlantis. What happens when you're born? You're, you literally rise up from the waters. You burst through. Your mother's water breaks. You rise up out of the water. And from that prior timeline, you are washed clean so that you can make the most of this current life by being baptized in holy water, in a new form of water. Everything goes back to this destruction of Atlantis, where humankind is still reverberating with this type of calamity. And they do it through very, very different ways. The, the, the number 12, 12-step programs, uh, you know, 12 months in a year, on and on we can go. But it is most noted with this idea of baptism and coming out of the water anew, and leaving the past behind. So let's take this a smidgen, a smidgen further. What if everybody knew that they had different timelines? What if everybody started to realize that their life now could potentially impact their life again in the future. So if you do icky things now, then you're going to have to pay for it again in another timeline. Don't you think that at some point people would get the idea that maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't be all dicks? Maybe we should be better to one another? Maybe we should help each other along? And maybe we should realize when we're being rooked by people in power that only want to use us as energy and fuel and want to make sure that mankind doesn't get too far down the road to spiritual enlightenment. So I think if we start to realize these concepts, then all of a sudden this timeline in particular is going to change drastically. 
It's going to change very differently. And it all has to do with coming back home and creating networks at the local level. And I'll leave you with this before I get down to the usual stuff with COVID-19 because I was proven right yet again and with all the vaccine nonsense. Uh, and I didn't get to another story about Google creating an AI uh, called Lambda, and the person that blew the whistle is a big-time occultist, so we have to get down that road, too. Uh, but I'll do that tomorrow. His name is Blake Lemion, or Lemon, I don't what, however you spell that or pronounce it. But the point that I'm trying to get at is that everything seems to go back in some way on a subconscious level to the fall of Atlantis. So we need to start recognizing that, and we need to start unraveling that, because it seems as though humankind as a whole is still dealing with the trauma of that event, whether that's through, uh, you know, commercial admiralty law and law of the sea and law of the land and everything it's still here it's still resonating on a subconscious level and we need to start unraveling that and letting it go and not paying attention to it anymore and i'll leave you with this one little final point when you're in tulum or if you're in that area of the world that uh, that latitude you know across the world you see these birds up high they're called frigate birds and frigate birds are kind of unique and the reason why they're unique is that they can stay aloft in the air for up to two months at a time that's right they're eating up there they're sleeping up there they're taking massive shits up there it's all done in the sky so if you are in Tulum or Mexico in that part of the world, what you're looking at is really the frigate birds ride on the, the, uh, the air, the pockets of wind. And all of those winds seemingly come from where? They come from the east. So those frigate birds represent the idea of a fallen continent, of a sunken continent, and they can't land. They don't have to land because their former homeland is beneath the waves. So they actually act as sentinels, constantly watching the horizon for the reemergence of Atlantis. And if you believe in the Atlantis myth, then you can read about how all of these bizarre elites think and truly believe Atlantis will rise again. That's what we talked about with Ghislaine Maxwell's Terramar project, where they're talking about being citizens of the global commons because they wanted to buy up seabeds and buy up land that was about to re-emerge all throughout the Caribbean Sea. See how it all goes back to Atlantis? So we need to start letting all of this trauma go. And it's a subconscious trauma. So that's going to be it for me. A very metaphysical podcast tonight uh, with Last Call with Chris Michaels. But I promise tomorrow we'll get to more mundane topics like vaccines and how I was proven right yet again uh, about sterility, the sterility agenda, 
but you know, when you get when you get away from the news for a week, you start to think differently, especially when you start to read books on Atlantis and you start to recognize certain patterns throughout the world. And maybe I'll do more podcasts like that on on metaphysics and uh, mythology. I'm, I'm a big time theologian uh, or theologian, depending upon where you are in the world. Uh, where you study religion, you try to connect all the dots. It's a fun time to have by all. So uh, tomorrow, more mundane stuff. I promise you, COVID-19, how I proved myself right, and also Google's occultists saying that Google has now created a, uh, a sentient artificial intelligence called Lambda. So this is Chris Michaels, and you've been listening to The Last Call Podcast with the aforementioned Chris Michaels. As always, I am everywhere. Last Call Caravan on Truth Social, Instagram, and uh, Twitter. I couldn't forget about Twitter. How could I forget about that? So find me, like me, share me. As always, I appreciate the lovable fuzzball listens that you all give me.